on today's Run to the Top podcast. The American Heart Association wants you to eat trans fats in margarine and vegetable oils, sunflower, safflower, which are all highly toxic. And you wouldn't want to eat what the Heart Foundation of America wants you to eat. You want to eat fats that appear in animals, that's and in nature and in plants. Welcome to the Run to the Top podcast from Runners Connect, where it's all about learning from the best and most inspiring minds in the sport. Together, we can train a smarter, healthier, and faster running community. Now here's your host, Stephanie K. Atwood. Welcome. This is Stephanie K. Atwood, Boston Marathon Qualifier Coach and host for the Run to the Top podcast. Today's guest is the well-known and highly acclaimed South African scientist, doctor, ultra-marathoner, educator, author, and controversial high-fat, low-carbohydrate spokesperson, Professor Tim Noakes. Timothy Noakes is a retired professor of exercise and sports science at the University of Cape Town. He has run more than 70 marathons and ultramarathons and is the author of several books on exercise and diet over the last four decades, including The Lore of Running, The Real Meal Revolution, Waterlogged, The Lore of Nutrition, and Challenging Beliefs. Today's talk will focus on high-fat, low-carbohydrate nutrition for athletes, the good, the bad, the controversy and the conflict that Professor Noakes met when he reversed his stance on how we should eat for athletic performance and lifetime health. This is must-listen stuff. If you are curious about carbohydrates, fat, and current trends of thought about how to improve performance and live a healthy life, listen and make up your own mind, but do join us for this controversial subject that is high on the list of nutrition importance for most of us runners. Welcome, Professor Noakes. Welcome to Run to the Top. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's a privilege and pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you for being here. I am honored to be interviewing you today and want to thank you for your candor and willingness to jump into this can of worms we call nutrition. Before we get into the details, let's take a short break for a message from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by NewKneeShop.com. Don't let knee pain keep you from completing your long runs or worse, sideline you altogether. An innovative new product called New Knee can help. New Knee is designed specifically to relieve that dreaded runner's knee pain. Let New Knee help you get back to running without knee pain. Available today at NewKneeShop.com. That's N-U-N-E-E shop.com. Use code RC20 for a 20% discount. That's RC20 for a 20% discount. Okay, we are back. Professor Noakes, let's start with the four basics before we get into the, the rest of the details. Those are, how old are you now? I'm 69 and a quarter. Uh, it's very important. I'm on the way to 70. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gotcha. And where were you born? I was born in Zimbabwe, Harare. It was Salisbury, Rhodesia in those days. And I live in Cape Town, as you know. You're living in Cape Town now. And what is your favorite, current favorite distance or type of running? Well, I used to obviously run two, an hour and a half, two hours a day. I now include quite a lot of gym work. So my running has come down to about 
half an hour to an hour or three or four times a week, and I do two or three gym sessions a week. So I run, I live very close to the mountain, and so I'm within 300 meters, I'm on the mountain slopes of Cape Town. So I'm very fortunate that I can run in the forest. Uh, within a few minutes, I can be in the forest anytime I like. Um, and are you talking mostly on trails at this point when you are running outside? Yeah, they're mostly on trails. I'm, I don't run much on the roads anymore. And again, as I say, I'm fortunate that I do live on the on the mountainside and in Cape Town. And you have been running for more than more than fifty years, I think, something along those lines. So I I know what you're talking about. I'm in that same general age group, and uh, <laughs> that's a that's a lot of miles. That's a lot of pounding pavement. That's right. And uh, yeah, we, we don't get faster with age, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, our focus today is on athletic performance, and you have been involved in this as a scientist, doctor, and runner for most of your life. So can you take the story a bit further and give us the 60-second version of your background, how you arrived at the high-fat, low-carbohydrate stance on nutrition? I know that over your lifetime, this has been a complete reversal to where you were earlier in your life, and the history has many elements worth hearing. Yes, indeed. So the first competitive sport I got involved with was rowing or crew, and it was whilst we were training for rowing that I'd learned that I also loved running. And when my rowing career ended, I, I wanted to run the Comrades Marathon, which is a 90-kilometer race in South Africa. And when I ran the first time in 1973, they didn't provide much fluid during the races. And so I, and we didn't take carbohydrates. We were eating mainly higher fat diets, lots of meat and protein. And in that period, the high carbohydrate diet came along. And as I was studying science and in medicine, I thought it was my responsibility to tell the world, at least in South Africa, that firstly, we needed to drink more during exercise. And secondly, we needed to eat more carbohydrates. And for the next 33 years, I did exactly that. I ate lots of carbohydrate and I promoted carbohydrate consumption. And the end result was that in 2010, I was overweight, I was lethargic, I was running badly. And I suddenly fortunately came across a book called The New Atkins for the New You. And there it said, lose six pounds in six weeks without hunger. And because I was feeling really fat and lethargic, I said, well, this is nonsense. I mean, it's impossible. But I said, well, let me try it. And I read the book and I got convinced that these guys were onto something. And so within two hours, I said, oh my gosh, for 33 years, I've been doing the wrong thing. I must test this out. And so I started on a, a low carbohydrate, high fat diet on that day. And within days, I started feeling healthier. My weight just dropped off like, a, like it was just unbelievable. And my running went back 20 years. I went back to where I was as a 40-year-old. So then I was 60. I started redoing times I had last done when I was 40. And it was just like, it was a miracle. And so then I, again, started to research it and started to promote it. And that was the beginning of the problem because we wrote a book which promoted the idea throughout South Africa. And it really produced a change in diet thinking in South Africa. And literally millions of people we know have adopted this diet in South Africa with good results. And that wasn't good enough for my colleagues. So they tried to evict me from the university. And I was involved in a four and a half year trial into my professional conduct. I was charged with unprofessional conduct for promoting this diet. 
And fortunately, after four and a half years, I won the case. And so I was completely vindicated on everything. I won every single point. So now we know that the diet is not unconventional and we know it's safe and it could potentially be prescribed in South Africa, although that hasn't happened. It's as if the case never happened. So they charged me, I won, but it's as if it never happened. We don't know, the country's not going to change its dietary advice simply because of this this unfortunate loss that they suffered in the in the trial. Let's clarify this from an athlete's perspective because insulin resistance is a huge part of what what you realized was an issue for you. So how many runners are actually dealing with insulin resistance and the type of changes they can make from nutrition changes that are dramatic for a lot of us from what we've been taught? Well, I think that the the degree of insulin resistance gets worse with age. And I know going back on my own data, when I was 28, I already had profound insulin resistance, but I didn't recognize it, of course, because we didn't know the condition. The condition was really only described by Gerald Raven from Stanford University in the early 70s. And can you describe what that is? What What is insulin resistance? It's a condition in which humans struggle to metabolize carbohydrates. So when we take in carbohydrates, our blood glucose levels rise. And in order to store the glucose or to use it as a fuel, we secrete insulin. And what happens if you are insulin resistant is the insulin doesn't act particularly well on the tissues it's meant to act on. So they are resistant to its action. And as a consequence, you have to over-secrete insulin to get your glucose down. Now, the problem is that some of your tissues remain insulin sensitive and so that you now have got too much insulin circulating in the body and it acts on some of the tissues to damage them. And the the one tissue that it works on rather well is fat tissue so that you tend to put on weight. Uh, It probably acts in the brain to make you hungry, so you're always hungry, so you eat more carbohydrates, you store them in fat and you become progressively fatter. And then ultimately, there's a whole range of medical conditions. In fact, all the chronic diseases which we face today, from high blood pressure to gout to diabetes to heart disease, are all part of this insulin resistance syndrome. Even osteoarthritis and osteoporosis, in other words, weakening of the bones, are all linked to insulin resistance and these high-carbohydrate diets. So there's almost nothing that you can't link back to insulin resistance. Professor Noakes, how 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 do you as a or how do we as runners, how do we test that we might be insulin resistant? I think what happens is you you put on weight with age and your running gets worse. It gets mm-hmm. progressively worse and you can't understand why you're training as hard, but you're performing less well. And I think you also start to to develop illnesses and you may obviously get high blood pressure or whatever, but or obesity, but that's That doesn't happen to everyone. So how do you detect it? Well, the best way is to measure your insulin because that's what the problem is. It's an insulin Mm -hmm. problem. So we we often measure glucose, but that's not the real issue. It's the insulin. And if you measure your insulin when you wake up in the morning, it should be lower than six units in the South African units, that's units per liter. And Mm -hmm. if it's below six units per liter, you're fine. But if it's above that, then you're in trouble. And keeping repeatedly hyper-secreting this insulin over months and years and decades causes the, the syndrome with all these complications that develop. 
So the question, the, the question would be, um, as a young person, so you said this was going on with you in your twenties and yet you didn't, you didn't recognize it. And it wasn't something that was clear until you were in your sixties. So for those of us now, well, I'm not in my twenties, but for young athletes now, is there a way that they can confirm that they are insulin resistant? Yes, you know, in my case, uh, the first ultra marathons that I ran were my best, and I was eating a high fat, high protein diet then. And then I changed subsequently because the dietary guidelines only change after that. And then I right. went on this high carbohydrate kick, and I never ran as well again. Wow. And that was to me clear that although I was trained, I was more experienced, and I, my running went off, particularly at the ultra marathons, which is really a fat burning activity. So that would be important to indicate if your performance is going down, you, that may be an indicator. So the first thing you measure is your insulin, your fasting insulin level. You can measure your fasting glucose if that's elevated. And then the one that I think is very helpful is a thing called the glycated hemoglobin or your HbA1c value, the glycated hemoglobin. And in the units that we use, which is a percentage, if you're 4.5, you're fantastic. You don't have to listen to this podcast. You, you're in good shape. <laughs> if it's 5.5, you have diabetes and you are going to get diabetes. Now, unfortunately, in my profession, because we didn't realize that type 2 diabetes is a completely reversible disease and it's a disease of choice, if you have a value of 5.5, you will get to the diagnostic cutoff value of 6.5 in a decade or two. You will get there. It's going to happen. So when you're at 5.5, you can say, well, okay, here I am. I'm essentially pre-diabetic. I must listen to Dr. Noakes and I must cut my carbohydrates to less than 50 grams a, a day. And I will keep that HbA1c at 5.5 and I will never develop diabetes. But if you don't listen and you continue to load up with 400, 500 grams of carbohydrate a day, carbohydrate loading, over-secreting insulin, your body just gets more and more and more insulin-resistant until ultimately it goes above 6.5 and then you diagnose as diabetes and you'll have, you'll have glucose in your urine and you'll start to show all the other complications of type 2 diabetes. So repeat then, the HbA1c value, you want to keep below 5.5%. And if you can keep it below 5.5% on the diet you're eating, that's fine. If it goes to 5.6 on the diet you're currently eating, you're eating too much carbohydrate and you must reduce. Now, you said something about, was it was it 100 grams of carbohydrate? Um, but, uh, you said 50 grams, that's right, if you have uh, this uh, insulin resistance. Now, I've found that people don't understand grams. So 50 grams of carbohydrate is about 200 calories a day, right? Uh, yeah, you multiply by five, that's right. Yeah, so... Each uh, gram of carbohydrate gives four calories, that's right. Right, so that's a really low amount of carbohydrate. And and what are we talking about in in the type of carbohydrate as well? Um, I, as you know, I mentioned before we started this interview that I've I've read a lot about you and I've looked into a lot of information, listened to YouTube, all, all of that kind of stuff. But the the quality of the carbohydrate has to make a difference. So that 200 calories or uh, even possibly less for, for some extreme, what kind of carbohydrate should that be? 
Well, it should be vegetables and vegetables that grow above the green leafy vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I guess you can have some other legumes if you want to, but as soon as you start eating legumes, you increase your your carbohydrate intake quite dramatically. So totally. realistically, if you want to cut to 50 grams, you really can only eat leafy vegetables as your source of carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. And so an athlete, of course, has a cal- caloric need that's higher than 200 calories, obviously. So can you describe, for example, your what you would eat on a day where you're working out, you're going out and you're running 10 kilometers or 15 kilometers? What does your your way of eating look like now? So the other, so remember, I have type 2 diabetes, which I've reversed by eating this way. And therefore, I absolutely cannot eat 26 grams of carbohydrate. I have to eat 25. I mean, that the cutoff is astonishing. And because I monitor my glucose all the time, I know this, that I'm so carbohydrate resistant that having a few grams extra puts, puts my glucose control out for two days. I mean, it, that, wow. because that's how damaged my system is by all the carbohydrate I've eaten. Well, and, and the problem is what people don't understand is that it's either all or nothing. You either do it properly if you've got type 2 diabetes or you don't. And if you don't mm-hmm. do it properly, then you die the way my father died. And that's that was what really influenced me. He had this most terrible death. And type 2 diabetes is one of the worst ways you can possibly die. And it's reversible or it's, you can go into remission. That's correct. And, uh, but only as long as you keep your carb, carbohydrate intake low. So I basically eat more of a carnivorous diet. I eat lots of meat and fish and eggs and dairy and nuts and a small bit of vegetables, and that's about it. So, And I will eat one big meal a day and, and snack for the rest of the day and, and fast. I won't eat for 12 to 14 hours a day. So from usually from dinner to lunch the next day, I won't eat. And, and what I do is when I do eat, I eat a big meal and until I'm actually over, over, my hunger is actually I'm forcing myself to eat the last few morsels. And I think, you know, do I really need this? And I eat it because I know that'll keep me not wanting to eat for another 12 to 14 hours. And I think it's the combination of the low carbohydrate plus the intermittent fasting that, that is so really beneficial. But remember, I'm kind of end stage insulin resistance that that, that uh, I, we're not talking about the average person. The average person, and I think this is your, your essentially answering your question, if you're running 15 kilometers a day or 20 kilometers a day, you can eat up to 200 grams of carbohydrate a day, in my opinion. And even if you are moderately insulin resistant, because you're running, you're going to burn up those calories, and that's fine. And those 200, calori- 200 grams will probably supply most of the energy that you burn during the exercise. And so you'd be fine. I still don't think that's ideal, but but people, a lot of people struggle to get stop eating carbohydrates. But if you're like me, that 200 grams will eventually kill you. So that you have to make the choice on how bad your level of insulin resistance is. Now, also uh, the the other things that you're eating, you're you know you're high on the protein and fat side of nutrition, and I think this is a lot of where you ran into controversy yeah. and, and criticism. Um, what what do you think are the ramifications of the health, long-term health ramifications of eating that type of diet? Clearly, it changes your, your diabetic. Uh, it allows you to be in remission on the diabetes. But for other things, are there other health issues that having such a high, high fat 
um, and high protein diet creates? Yeah, that's a brilliant question because that, of course, is the, the, the nub of the problem. You see, when I go outside in South Africa or I visit the United States of America and I look around and I can see what the effects of the diet that they're eating it has, the long-term effects of the diet, there's this epidemic of obesity and diabetes. So I find it very difficult for people to justify continuing to eat this high-carbohydrate diet when you look around and see what, what the issues are. Mm-hmm. So I was brought up by parents who lived through the Second World War and from Britain and my mother was actually, her father was involved in the meat industry. So I was, I was meat-based for my, for my, during my childhood. And it was only when I went to medical school and became educated that <laughs> I, I discovered meat was bad for you and, and uh, fat was bad for you. And so my, my point actually is that the biggest problem we have in the world is diabetes. What's going to kill me is mm. diabetes. I could have mm. a heart attack, but I'm much more likely mm-hmm. to have kidney failure and lose my limbs. Mm-hmm. And and become senile, have dementia. Mm-hmm. That's what is going to affect me first. And it's not the arteries to my heart. They they one issue, but it's the whole arteries throughout the body that are the problem. And diabetes causes arterial disease. So what we weren't told by the people who promote this low fat, high carbohydrate diet, we because they wanted to prevent heart disease. Well, all it's done is produces epidemic of diabetes, which causes much worse arterial disease. And it causes people to lose their limbs and their eyes and their renal function and so on. And, and so we've, we've actually caused more arterial disease by eating this low-fat diet. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I do have a, another question about this protein stuff because I think it's the assumption, and I've, I've listened to some criticisms of your stance on nutrition and and I'm just blown away by how by how mean people are and really how they'll pick out one aspect of the situation and kind of focus on it which is disturbing to me as a someone who's curious about nutrition and athletic performance but this doesn't mean even if you're high protein high fat that you're going to be eating fried chicken every meal <laughs> no not at all yeah. Absolutely not. I, we don't eat fried foods, you know, for a start. Right, so, right. And you're quite right. So that that that's not that never comes into the equation. And I, I think, but I think that's important to clarify because it is it is the type of things that um, both the assumption might be that you can eat whatever kind of protein and high fat you want, trans fats, yeah. fatty meats, you know, processed meats. I mean, all of that and but also this whole notion of that the kind of food that you eat, the kind of fats that you eat, the kind of protein that you eat does have to be quality and not toxic in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. You mustn't eat the industrial fats that the heart foundations want us to do. The American Heart Association wants you to eat trans fats in margarine and vegetable oils, sunflower, safflower, etc., which are all highly toxic. And you wouldn't want to eat what the Heart Foundation of America wants you to eat. You want to eat fats that appear in, in animals that's, uh, and in nature and in plants. Those are the fats that you want to eat. What do you eat during the day to be able to work out, to be able to control your diabetes, your type 2 diabetes? 
Well, the key thing is to make sure that I keep my carbohydrate intake as low as possible, and it's usually less than 25 grams per day. And what people need to understand once you have type 2 diabetes is that you can't eat 26 grams because that's going to affect your blood glucose control. So that the the margins of error are tiny, and you really either go and do everything properly or don't bother. That That's the situation. So to eat so little carbohydrate, the only carbohydrates I will eat essentially are leafy vegetables and a little bit of milk. And those are the main carbohydrates that I would eat, and occasionally perhaps some nuts, which might have a bit more carbohydrate in them. So what I focus on is meat and fish and dairy and nuts and some vegetables. That's And of course, eggs. Eggs are probably one of the main f- foods that I eat. So that, that would be the foods that I choose from, which is very easy because that's all you can eat, but that gives you plenty of options. And that for all the foods that contain those are absolutely delicious. And then I eat one big meal a day and will snack perhaps once a day otherwise, because I think it's very important to fast intermittently and even some days to not eat at all. Now, how do you balance your blood sugar with that? I will eat a big meal usually at breakfast or lunchtime, and then I will fast uh, for 14, 12 to 14, 16 hours the rest of the day. And the key is that that allows my insulin to go really low, and that then helps make sure my insulin resistance doesn't get worse. Because the more insulin you secrete because you're eating more carbohydrates, the more insulin resistant you become. And this is that's, that's the progressive part of the disease. So if you can keep your insulin down all the time, then the disease may not progress at all. Now, you are you have admitted to this, this is the condition of type 2 diabetes. You already know that. But there are people who are insulin resistant but are not at that level of having type 2 diabetes. Um, And so as an athletic or as an athlete, how how would they deal with um, or what kinds of levels of carbohydrate are they able to take in uh, and still stay at a healthy level as far as type 2 diabetes? Sure. And I think it's, it really depends on your own genes, your genetics mm. and your family history and whether your mother ate a lot of carbohydrates during her pregnancy and whether oh. you were exposed to high carbohydrate diets from a young age. Those all make you progressively more insulin resistant. So, so I take the opposite argument that carbohydrates are non-essential. You can live your life without ingesting one single carbohydrate because we have this liver that can produce all the carbohydrate you need. So that's point one. Point two is that the vast majority of recreational athletes do not need carbohydrates because they don't run fast enough to really warrant them. Interesting. So, yeah, so people say, you know, I ran a four-hour marathon, I've got to have my carbohydrate nonsense. You can run a 220 marathon purely provided from fat. So don't come and tell me you need to your carbohydrates for your four-hour marathon. You don't. You can just you can get the whole way on carbohydrates. Now, would that take and, training? Would that take training, or is that something? Be, because I know in my own running, and I'm definitely in that four-hour range uh, for a marathon. I I start feeling fatigued. Now, how so? How am I? You know, how am I going to deal with that at the time that I'm running the marathon? So let me give you a bit of an explanation. But in 1998, I was invited to go to the Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon. Mm -hmm. 
And it was because it wasn't funded by a particular sports drink company that particular year. Because I was ex- excluded by them because I was already saying that they were over-promoting their products and so on. So anyway, I went to the race and I presented a talk saying why the Ironman triathlon is impossible. Because from our own data, <laughs> we'd shown that if you go and cycle for four and a half hours, uh-huh. you've got no more glycogen stored in your muscles. <laughs> so you have to run the last marathon on, on fat. Yeah. And I made some calculations that if you were burning the amount of carbohydrate you were generating from your liver mm-hmm. and a little bit of lactate from other sources, mm-hmm. you'd have to burn fat at 1.15 grams per minute. Now, at that time, in 1998, no one had ever measured anyone burning 1.15 grams or more during exercise. <laughs> it, that, it was just not known. So I said, well, that's why it's impossible. And in fact, <laughs> Mark, Allen, Mark Allen had won the Ironman running a 239 marathon, you see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, the only conclusion must be that he can burn fat at 1.15 grams per minute. Interesting. And, and that's why he's able to do it. So although we'd never measured it, I felt he had to be able to do it. Subsequently, I learned that he was actually a partially, at least partially fat adapted as an athlete. He didn't eat a high-carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, fast forward a few years, and Jeff Olek, who was, wrote the book that saved my life, The New Atkins for the New You, did a study of some ultramarathon runners in America who'd adopted this high-fat diet, and he showed they could burn 1.5 grams per minute. Wow. So now we knew that you could burn this amount. We subsequently did a study here in Cape Town and found exactly the same. We got people up to 1.2, 1.5 grams per minute. Mm-hmm. And so it was clear that you can burn. But now the really important, the really interesting study was done uh, two years ago at the Australian Institute of Sport by Dr. Louise Burke, who, who doesn't like me because she's very pro-carbohydrates <laughs> and thinks that, thinks that fat is the worst thing. She's, she publicly stated that I should be in jail for promoting oh. that diet. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so when I draw attention to one of her papers as being important, then you know it's important. What she did was she took people who were trained to race, uh, race walkers. She got the best in the world. She took them to Australia and she put some of them on this high-fat diet. And, and what she found that after three weeks, they actually didn't perform as well as they, they did usually. Good, but that was only three weeks. Mm-hmm. But the key was that she had them race 25 kilometers. So she measured them when they arrived, when they were in a high-carbohydrate diet, and she found, discovered how much carbohydrate and how much fat they were burning. Uh-huh. And then she raced them 25 kilometers three weeks later when these people had adapted to a high-fat diet. Uh-huh. Only three weeks, no. Yeah. And she found that after three weeks, they were burning up to 1.6, 1.7 grams per minute. Wow. Without, with almost no adaptation. Three wow. weeks is not a period of adaptation. Yeah. And what that tells me is that if you are an elite athlete, mm-hmm. you have the capacity to burn all this fat. You don't need much to tool up to allow your muscles to burn the fat. What's inhibiting it is eating so much carbohydrate and secreting insulin. And that's what's inhibiting your fat metabolism capacity. Wow. Take away the insulin break and you can burn fat very, very quickly. Wow. So, so, but to, to, even though their burnings that much fat, their performance was down. It really takes, we've worked with elite athletes and it takes them six months to nine months to really start performing optimally on the start. So it does take time, even though, 
your metabolism is upregulated very quickly. There are other things that change which you need time to adapt to. That is really, really fascinating to me. I mean, I love that. And I've, I've heard allusions to that before. So it's not the first time that I've heard about that kind of quick adaptation and also that uh, for significant adaptations, then it is mm. going to take longer for your entire body to adjust to it. Can I, and can I add that in the, lo, in the trial, she found that the athletes were burning less than one gram of carbohydrate per minute. They even went down to half a gram Interesting. after two and a half hours of exercise. They were burning half a gram a minute. But now if you follow the Gatorade advice to doing the Ironman, you told you must eat 100 grams of carbohydrate every hour yeah. during an eight-hour Ironman. Yeah. But so you must eat eight, 800 grams of carbohydrate. I mean, it's just... What that's doing to your body is just frightening. And that's true even if you're not insulin resistant? Yes, I think it's uh, because carbohydrates are inflammatory and you recover more slowly. And uh, those are all the other facts. And your teeth get destroyed. <laughs> you know, athletes, have, athletes have some of the worst teeth. There's a study of Olympic athletes during the London Olympics and they showed that the athletes' teeth were worse than the British teeth, and the British teeth aren't great, but the athletes had worse teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for clarifying that. Now, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that was that there is no essential requirement for carbohydrates. That's a pretty strong statement. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that? Well, thank goodness it's not Tim Noakes saying it's the Institute of Medicine in the United States of America who says that in their guidelines. So you, your brain does need some carbohydrates. You need about 25 grams a day, mm -hmm. but your liver can provide that easily. It can provide two or three grams or much more than that a minute. Is, oh, that, sorry, in an hour. is that in glycogen that your liver provides? Is that how that... Yeah, it's, it converts fat and protein into glucose. Mm-hmm. And it's pushing, it's pumping that out all the time. So, for example, my case now, I've got type 2 diabetes. My liver is uncontrolled. It just produces glucose in excess all the time. Mm -hmm. And I can't regulate it. And so the, the liver is very, very good at producing glucose. Now, what we've done, we're the first people in the world to study the effects of this diet on glucose production by the liver. And we showed that on the high-fat diet, your glucose production by the liver goes down because your body doesn't use it anymore. Mm -hmm. You don't need that glucose because the, you're burning other things. You're burning fats and ketone bodies in exchange for glucose. So that your, your liver is producing less glucose on this diet, but still more than enough. And when we had these people exercise for two and a half hours, their glucose control was mag magnificent. It was absolutely perfect. Their glucose didn't drop because the liver is not stupid. It knows how much the muscles need and it produces all the glucose that the muscles need. And even when you're competing, so you're obviously having various parts of your body trying to figure out, you know, which is going to be the most important part of getting you to the finish line in that marathon. You're still, your liver is still producing enough glucose for you to finish that 26.2 miles or even longer. Absolutely. And, and we, we tell people when they adapt to this diet, to do their long runs on Saturday or Sundays, and they they would, let's say that they normally run, say, three hours is a long run, then they, they would start half an hour, then an hour, then an hour and a half, then two hours, then two and a half hours, then three hours. And they just don't take any food during those, right? Just drink mm -hmm. water. And slowly the body will adapt. And once you can do it in training, then you realize you can do it 
during races as well. One of the problems is that glucose is a drug. And so many people need glucose during exercise because they've got a drug dependency issue with glucose. And so they find they do need it to give them a lift during the race. But it's not acting metabolically. Metabolically, the muscle's getting all the energy they need. What's happening is that the it's acting as a stimulus in the brain. Now you have uh, you've taken on a lot of controversial subjects, <laughs> and hydration <laughs> is another one that comes to mind because of this. We're running a marathon. We. Uh, we want to drink something. And I know that this has been such a controversy over the last couple of decades. Now talk about the high, the hydration controversy and how that fits into the same notion of letting the body do what it needs to do for us. And then if we're amending something, doing that safely without what marketing or advertising being the, the driving force. So you have to go back to the 1970s was when I started running marathons. And in those years, in the 1970s, we initially we were eating protein and fat. There was no carbohydrate loading. And when you ran a race, you you just ran. And if there was water available during the race, you were lucky. <laughs> that, that was it. And so when I ran my first Comrades Marathon, which is 90 kilometers, I had to provide my own person to help me. And mm-hmm. I saw him four times during the race. So I had four drinks. So he ran with me for maybe a minute and a half, gave me a drink, and that was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. <laughs> so I probably drank, drank a liter maximum during during six and a half hours of racing. But but that was the way it was. Now then, because we realised this didn't this wasn't such a good idea, a lot of us started, and globally they started promoting we need more fluids during exercise. And the the 1976 Olympics in Montreal were the first where they were allowed to drink regularly. It was the first marathon. Now, what happened next in 1981, the Comrades Marathon allowed drinking every mile. They allowed a drinking station every mile for 56 miles. Now, so all of a sudden you had runners exposed to the most fluid they were ever exposed to in their lives. Mm -hmm. And it was all free. And so what happened in that race was a lady collapsed and nearly died, and she was unconscious for four days. And she then wrote to me, and and over the next few years, we worked out she just overdrank, and we then knew this condition of waterlogging, that you could become waterlogged. And we published the definitive evidence in 1991 that this condition of collapse during exercise with fluid retention was because people were being encouraged to drink too much. And I predicted in 1993 that the first death from this condition would occur in a female runner in the United States of America. And in 1993, it happened in the race in California, the, the Valley of the Giants Marathon. A lady died in that race. And she came to the finish and she said, I'm terribly thirsty. And she drank a lot of fluid. She went to hospital. She was unconscious. She was given intravenous fluids. I suspect, I can't be absolutely certain of that. And because she was overhydrated, the adding the fluid was enough to cause her brain to swell and she stopped breathing as a consequence. Wow. And, and then what happened was, so that was 1993, but what had happened in 1986 was that a famous sports drink in the United States was bought by a major company and they said, we're going to make this sports drink a major product, and which they did. And they advertised it and they overmarketed it. And they said you had to drink ahead of thirst. And they got the scientists to say that. And that was the tragedy. 
They funded the scientists and they made sure that the scientists would draw up dietary guidelines or drinking guidelines during exercise saying that athletes must drink as much as tolerable because dehydration will kill them. And unfortunately, the evidence we already had was that that was what's going to kill them. Those, that advice is going to kill them. And in the 2004, or no, it was 2002 Boston, no, it was 2004 Boston Marathon, I think, a lady ran the race and Cynthia Lucero, she arrived at the 35 kilometers, 20, uh, roughly 20 miles or so. She was barely conscious. She was put in an ambulance, taken to the nearest hospital, and she died in hospital. And it was reported in the New York Times and the Boston Globe that she had drunk too much fluid, including Gatorade. And that was when people started taking it seriously. And in 2007, the American College of Sports Medicine revised their, their drinking guidelines and they produced the guidelines, which exactly what I had produced for other organizations. And they said, you must drink to thirst. And that's the key. As long as you drink to thirst, you will maximize your performance and you won't overdrink and get at risk of becoming waterlogged and dying as a consequence. Now, that um, actually ties back into this high-fat, low-carbohydrate way of eating because you had also talked about, let me see if I can get my, my thinking straight here, um, how there seems to be some connection with sodium and micronutrients as hydration aids with people who are eating this kind of diet that you are advocating. So can you kind of connect those two? Because I know it's not scientific at this point, or at least it wasn't when I was listening to what you were talking about on YouTube, but there is a connection. That's correct. So if you read my book, Waterlogged, I give all the evidence why if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you don't need to add salt because the body is incredibly good at conserving salt. It turns out that once you start eating a high-fat diet and your insulin levels come down, you're not quite as good as conserving sodium and you, in fact, lose quite a lot of sodium in urine. And my great friend, Stephen Finney, who really is the man who promoted this ketogenic diet for athletes, is an expert and I would never conflict with anything he says. And he said we need to eat more salt uh, if you're on this diet. And mm -hmm. I've certainly done that. And I've also added magnesium to the diet. Mm -hmm. And because I think it's, well, I think many of us are magnesium deficient and, and I've certainly seemed to have helped me a little bit. So I don't think you need to restrict your salt. If you're eating up to six grams of salt a day, that's, that's fine. There's no evidence that it's toxic or dangerous to your body. If you're, in, if you're sorry, salt sensitive and you're eating eight, nine grams a day, then it may well have an effect on your blood pressure. But at lower levels of up to six grams per day, it doesn't seem to affect your blood pressure in any marked way. Whereas if it's a down at one or two grams, which is what we're told to eat by the American Heart Association, there's absolutely no evidence that that's healthy. And there's growing evidence that restricting salt is not a good idea. So again, I think it, you take salt, you add it to taste. And don't be scared of adding salt to your food. Because if you add salt, it'll only take up to six grams a day. It won't go beyond that. I appreciate your attitude. You're so pragmatic about it. And also, if you listen to your body, how many times do we hear that? Runners, listen to your body, whether it's injury, whether it's nutrition, whether it's stretching, you know, listen to your body. You, and, and you're quite right, because, you know, when I started running in the 70s, we knew nothing. We absolutely knew nothing <laughs> about the there. physiology. <laughs> and and that, that's all we had. You know, we only had... Uh, 
listen to your body. And my great hero was George Sheehan. Uh, he was my guru. And he just said, listen to your body. And that's how we did it. <laughs> we had no other way. <laughs> it got it got a lot of us through. We're still here. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I, just, go ahead. I, if I could just make one comment, you know, I've just read two of my great heroes who 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 really I never realized it that the running boom, the global marathon running boom, is driven by two people: Frank Shorter and Bill and Bill Rogers. Frank Shorter wins the the 1972 Olympic marathon. And he's from Boulder, Colorado now, but he's from other places. He was from New York State. And Bill Rogers, who was from Boston. Those two drove the whole thing. It's unbelievable that two men can have such incredible influence. And these are still, they're younger than me, or they're my age. They're about 70, maybe 71 now. And they caused it all to happen. And it's two fabulous biographies that, that runners need to read to understand where it all came from. And I read their books. And I mean, they were not coached. They were largely self-trained. Mm. And all they knew is they just had to run a lot of miles every day. <laughs> and they had, to do, they had to do a lot of intensive training. And, and Frank Shorter, who was the first of the two, I mean, he just did this incredibly hard training. And, and he knew when he wins the 1972 Olympics, it's a lovely story because he was the fastest 5K runner in of all the marathon runners in the world. So he said, well, all I'm going to do is in the middle of this race, I'm going to run 5Ks as fast as I can. Huh? And then I'm going to slow down again And because no one will be with me after 5Ks. Mm. They'll all have dropped off. And then I'll just slow down and, and they're not going to close up. And that's how he ran his races and that's how he won. Wow. wow. But, and that, but he, he worked that out, you know. He, no one told him that. And Bill Rogers comes from nothing, absolutely nothing. And then just runs hard. And I'm so proud because I ran the 1976 New York Marathon, which he won. And that was the beginning of his, his great career. So I think we've got to at least uh, give someone like Catherine Switzer a little bit of credit in yeah. there, too. Yeah. Um, because for women, of course, we had our own idols and also women who really made that, you know, made it made marathons and running available to women. Absolutely. And I, and I think... And, and you're quite right, and that's my point. It's individuals who change the world, and that, and I never realized it. And I, although I was right there in it while it was happening, yeah, yeah, I never realized it was just this handful of individuals who produced it. And yeah. we were just so fortunate to to have have had those wonderful people around. And if if Frank Shorter ever hears this, or Bill Rogers ever hears this, I just want to thank them. They did. I I agree with you completely. It's uh, we've lived through a lot of history with with running. Mm, absolutely. Now, um, a couple of, a couple of questions I have for you again, tying kind of tying this nutrition together because the, the more I read and the more I learn, the more, you know, questions I have it, obviously isn't, it isn't all figured out yet, but right. um, the notion of the brain needing fat and this whole, I've, I've recently listened to the book grain brain, which was fascinating. Yeah. And, and yeah. I know you make connections with um, auto, autoimmune disease and gliadin, gluten issues, and referring to Grain Brain, I think, was one of the books that you mentioned. So can yeah. you connect that with your high-fat, low-carbohydrate nutrition? Yeah, I, I've been influenced by a guy called Alessio Fasano, who's a professor at Harvard, and he's another genius. And he realized that although gluten causes celiac disease, it does much more than that, and that there's another range of conditions 
which he calls non-celiac gluten intolerance. And I had that. And because when I cut gluten out of my diet, I, there were about five or six conditions which disappeared. Wow. So clearly I'm totally resistant to gluten or, or sensitive to gluten, mm-hmm. but I never had celiac disease. So therefore I, would, I went under the radar. Mm-hmm. And, and his story is that what happens is that if you're gluten intolerant, you develop what's called a leaky gut syndrome. And then you, you open the gut to all the bacterial proteins that exist in the gut. And those proteins can now be absorbed. And they come into the, into the bloodstream and the body immediately says, hold it, there's an invading protein coming in here. Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? It doesn't matter. It, it mounts an immune response. And if there's a cross link between that protein and your tissues, you start to produce an autoimmune response to your own tissues. And then you can have arthritis and all these other conditions. And so the leaky gut syndrome, which is not recognized in traditional teaching of medicine, is in my view terribly, terribly important. And so although it starts with gluten, it's not just gluten. I'm beginning to realize that plants are a cause of leaky gut and an autoimmune disease. So when I started writing about the low-carb diet, people wrote to me and said, you know, I cured my diabetes. And people said, but that's impossible. Well, now we know it's not because there are now clinical trials showing that it happens. What I'm noticing, noticing now is people are writing to me and saying they're curing their autoimmune disease by not eating plants. They cut out all vegetables so that they, there's something else in plants that, in my opinion, is causing in, in susceptible individuals. Please understand that. This is in susceptible individuals, not in everyone. Mm-hmm. But if you are susceptible and you can, the, the vegetables or the plant-based foods can cause a leaky gut and that can cause autoimmune disease. So, so my message now is if you have autoimmune disease, try cutting out plants for a period and see what happens. If nothing happens, then, then it's not going to work for you. If it, if it cures you, well, then you know that the cause is something to do with the leaky gut and it's because you are incredibly sensitive to something that exists in plants. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's another research project for you, huh? You, you've got, you've well, got plenty you know, of... You know, I wish I was younger <laughs> because there's going be, to be a Nobel Prize for that one. And, mm-hmm. and it's not difficult. It's not difficult. You just mm-hmm. have to take 20 people with autoimmune disease or 50 people with autoimmune disease and put them on a on a plant-free diet and see what happens. Wow. Well, that sounds like another controversy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wanted to to mention that in 2008, you received the Order of Mapungubwe. Did I pronounce that right? Um, That's brilliant. It's amazing for an American to be able to say that is amazing (laughs) because you got it absolutely spot on. Thank you. And this was from the president of South Africa for your, quote, excellent contribution in the field of sports and the science of physical exercise, unquote. When did you start speaking out on this high fat, low carbohydrate? (laughs) Great question. In 2011, (laughs) because if I'd started before, I wouldn't have got the award. I was thinking that you just are so willing to speak about what's important. And I, I know in having listened to you that you're, you're willing to be challenged by these other people who, uh, the, the way they attack you is 
not always professional. Certainly there have been personal attacks as well. And I really appreciate both what, both what you've stood up for and also your excellent contribution to the whole field of sports and the science of physical exercise. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Now, I wanted to uh, kind of, we're sort of wrapping up here, but I have a couple of questions for you on, um, and you'll have a chance to tell us about all of the books that you've written. So I I do want you to mention those before we get off of this interview. Um, But you have started a foundation called the Noakes Foundation. Would you talk about that some? Yeah, so... I've always put all the money I get from my lectures or from my books into trusts. And the one trust funds a research scientist who, who's amazing research, and he looks at the muscles of mammals because we only study muscles of humans and rats and mice. And in Africa, we've got all these fabulous mammals like lions and, and leopards and all sorts of exciting, and all the antelope who have all different characteristics to their muscles. And so that's what he researches. Why? Because as we get older, we get weaker muscles. And his work shows that a lion's muscle, for example, are three times as strong as human muscle. So if we want to understand some of the characteristics that make muscles strong, well, one of the groups we should look at is lions. So we fund his his work. Then when we wrote The Real Meal Revolution, which which sold hugely in this country and became a bestseller and one of the top sellers of all time, we we had quite a lot of money over. And so I put it into the Noakes Foundation. And our goal with the Noakes Foundation is to fund studies of low-carbohydrate diets because it's very difficult to raise money for researchers. So we're currently funding some studies on reversal of type 2 diabetes. What happens when people on a low-carbohydrate diet reverse their diabetes? What's the biology that's changed? Because if we understand what's changed, then we know what core, what had changed to cause the diabetes. That's the one component. The second component is a program called Eat Better South Africa because the poorest people in South Africa, as in the United States, are the ones who have the worst diets and they are suffering the worst disease. And we're trying to show, and in fact are showing, that you can live in South Africa, even if you're poor, on a low-carbohydrate diet that is healthy and which will start reversing some of these chronic diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure and so on. So that's a major push, and we're about to start a randomized control trial where we take people in a living in a very poor community and we give them, or sorry, we encourage them to eat the right foods and we educate them, and then we'll see what happens to their, the incidence of chronic diseases because a lot of people say the poor, you can't help the poor because it's all their circumstances that, that make them unhealthy, and it's not true. Of course, their circumstances are important, but the nutrition is the number one problem that they face. And if you cut out the sugar and the carbohydrates and start feeding them protein and fat, they start to heal. And then the third fact we realized is that when we initially started this drive was to get people to change their diets. We said, one person, one meal at a time. That's how we'll drive the change. Now we realize that the key people in the community are the doctors. And so we've started a nutrition network program on the internet, which is through the internet, which allows doctors and nurses to get, uh, to get points for their, for their continuing medical education. And they get an education on how to prescribe a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet and how it's helpful for different conditions. Because we know that the doctors are key. 
every doctor we convert to this diet will convert thousands of patients. And those thousands of patients will convert in turn more than tens of thousands of patients. So we think we can get to the doctors, we can change, we can produce change even more quickly. I love that. Now, I wanted to get back to this poor people eating uh, at an affordable amount of, uh, of money per day, uh, because I think that also does to some extent apply to the, the mass of people out there and athletes in particular who don't have to look at eating a, a way that you're, you're advocating for a lot of money. In fact, in yeah, the, yeah. in the YouTube that I, that I listened to on you talking about this major study of people eating on a limited amount of money per day, it was $3 per day. Now that might've changed. I don't know, but I, I did want you to elaborate on that a bit because I think, you know, a lot of times, in fact, I have relatives who say, oh, I can't afford to eat healthy. And uh, this is what you're talking about. So as it relates to athletes, can they, can they get by on $3 a day or on an affordable amount of money per day? The foods that are cheap are eggs and offal. Offal is incredibly cheap. And those are the two of the most nutritious foods you can have. And sardines is the third food that is and so we focus on those as the core foods. And of course, that sounds terrible because it's it kind of dull and boring. But if you're getting healthy and you're eating those foods, then that's what matters. Now, what is awful? O-F-F-A-L? Sorry, awful is the, the internal organs of animals. Okay. Which are incredibly cheap and which are actually the most nutritious. In this country, also, the, the low-fat meat is the expensive meat, and the meat with lots of fat on it is cheap. So we tell people, go and eat the, the fatty meat, and then instead of buying butter, you buy the fat, and you, you render the fat, and then you use that as butter, and you use it for cooking. Wow. When we get to our communities, then we find that then the vegetables are relatively cheap. They can provide their own, and then they work. They work in communities, and for example, some of the fishing communities in the Western Cape, because we have lots of fish, they mm-hmm. can source cheaper fish as well. And so it is possible to do, and we've now got communities that for three or four years have been eating this diet, despite the fact that they're living on three or four dollars a day. They're still eating the diet, and they're still healthy, and they're getting more healthy all the time. Wow. So impressive. Um, I, we are going to be changing into our final kick. Um, before we do that change, is there anything that you would like to add to kind of summarize what we've talked about here today? Yeah, I think that uh, what I learned in running is that it's all self-experimentation. And even if the science says you must do this, you have to test out on yourself. And I wish that I had tested out this dietary change on myself much earlier but there was no option because no one was teaching it. We we thought it was dangerous. So if I have one piece of advice for athletes is don't do the same thing repeatedly. My great friend, Bruce Fordyce, who won the Comrades Marathon nine times, you know, he said a lot of people would come up to him and say, gosh, I've run the Comrades 10 times. And Bruce would say, no, 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 no. You ran it once. You just repeated the same old errors 10 times. (laughs) 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 And, and, And and that's the key, you know, don't be scared to experiment. So, you know, there may be people who will try the high-fat diet. It'll be a disaster. There will be people. It'll be a complete disaster for them, and then they know. But there are others who would completely revolutionize their running and their health. And 
and that, but you will never know unless you try. And, and wow. the beauty and the reason why this diet catches on is within two or three weeks, you know it's for you or it's not. And then you don't have to wait 10 years. You don't have to try this diet for 10 years to find out whether it works. You will know in two or three weeks whether it works. And yeah. certainly in, in six weeks to, to nine weeks, you will know. And if it doesn't work, then for you, it doesn't work. I'm, Tim Noakes is not wrong. He's just wrong for you. Your body's different. You must do something else. Yeah, I love that. I love your attitude, too. I think it's, it's terrific. And we, we are going to move on here to the final kick. But before that, let's take a moment to recognize our Run to the Top sponsors. Have you been struggling with knee pain on your runs? Don't let dreaded runner's knee derail your training and stop you from getting to the starting line. New Knee is an innovative new product designed specifically for runner's knee. It can get you running again immediately without knee pain. New Knee was invented by two-time Ironman Mike Emerly because of his own five-year struggle with runner's knee. Mike had tried a variety of treatments, including compression sleeves and knee straps. Nothing allowed him to run without knee pain. Frustrated, Mike came up with his own unique solution, a solution based upon research. The research reveals that if you relieve the pressure, you relieve the pain. New Knee does exactly that. By relieving the pressure on your patella, your kneecap, New Knee can provide immediate relief of runner's knee pain. Mike now trains pain-free and no longer modifies his training to accommodate knee pain. Today, Mike receives weekly emails from runners like Sarah who said, It's wonderful. I'm back to running and couldn't be happier. And Andy who said, Congratulations on a winning design. Nuni helped me immediately. Nuni has even been five-star rated by DPT and running injury specialist Dr. Ben Shadow. Every now and then, an innovative product comes along that changes everything. New Knee is changing how runner's knee pain is treated. Stop runner's knee in its tracks by going to newkneeshop.com and use code RC20 for a 20% discount. That's N-U-N-E-E-S-H-O-P, newkneeshop.com, and use code RC20. Welcome back with Professor Timothy Noakes discussing high-fat, low-carbohydrate nutrition. Professor Noakes, are you ready for the final kick? I am ready. What do you got waiting for me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first, what is your favorite local training run there in? Are you in Cape Town? Is that where you're living? I'm in Cape Town. Yeah, so tell us enough that when we come to visit you, and uh, it would be uh, purposeful if most of us get over there, because I know it's a bit of a, a, a travel time, but uh, tell us enough that we would be able to actually do a run in your area. Well, the, one of the most beautiful races in the world is the Two Oceans Marathon, which is a 35-mile, 56-kilometer race. I ran it 15 times, and I was the 15th person to have run it 10 times, so I have the number 15, <laughs> and, it, and which I have for, for posterity. And I still run the half marathon every year. And it is the most beautiful run because it takes you down the two sides of the peninsula. We're on a peninsula. 
and on the left as you go down is the Indian Ocean, and and then you cross over. It's very narrow at that point, maybe two or three kilometers wide, and then you come back up the Atlantic coast, and you come up a, a, a place called Chapman's Peak, which has been the road was dug out of the mountainside by the Italian prisoners of war during the Second World War, and it's just one of the most remarkable views that you have. And this comes at after the 20 miles into the race. So after 20 miles, from 20 miles to the marathon mark, you have this beautiful view, and then you have 14 kilometers or nine miles of really tough up running and then uphill and then downhill. So you've got your marathon, which is beautiful, and then you've got a tough final nine miles added on. And it's, it's just very beautiful. It's run at the right time of the year. It's autumn, and the weather is usually nice. Sometimes it rains a lot, but generally cool. And so that, that would be my favorite local run. To, for the rest of Americans, the greatest race in the world is the Comrades Marathon. And I say that even having not run the marathon, but having run New York, that my great friend, Ambie Burfoot, who is the editor of Runner's World, he's run it. He said, there's nothing to touch it. It's, it's an epic day out running 56 miles. It's on national television for 12 hours. It is amazing. You run through the countryside between Durban and Peter Maritzburg, two, two major towns in KwaZulu-Natal. You run up one year, you run down the next year, and the crowds on the sides are, represent South Africa at its best. Well, wow. it's, it's just an amazing day because <laughs> when you reach 42, 24 mile, 25 miles and you mm -hmm. run your 26 miles, you run your marathon, you haven't even started this race. This race starts... <laughs> It starts at 35 miles, and then you have 21 miles still to go. You still have a marathon to go. Now, how and many those... stations are there on the, on the, <laughs> on the course now? <laughs> there's 56 still. And I, oh, they still. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get them to reduce it, but, but they won't. <laughs> okay, so your advice might be just don't drink at every aid station, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, uh, second question here, and this one might take a little bit of time, but you have written so many books that relate to runners. Could you just briefly talk yeah. about each one? Well, I started in 1981 working on a book which became Law of Running, and the reason I did it was because I had so many, everyone was asking me the same question, so I said, well, let me, let, let me put it down in a book, mm -hmm. and then I won't have to answer the same questions. And I thought oh, it'll take me two or three months and I'll be done. Well, it took me five years and then eventually it was published. And that's into its fourth edition. And I'm now working on the fifth edition, which I'm sure will be the final edition because it's, it's been almost 35 years in, in production. Wow. And it's been rated the ninth greatest book ever on running, which is quite an achievement because it's not an autobiography. It's a, it's a thousand pages and it's quite hard science. So that was that's kind of the, the book that, that probably defined me initially. Mm -hmm. Then I wrote a book called Challenging Beliefs, which was the story of how I challenged six, seven ideas, actually. And when I published the book, I'd won, all, I'd won six, but I hadn't won the seventh one. That was the low-carb diet. I hadn't won that one yet. So then that's the next book. Then I wrote Waterlogged, which is about my battle with Gatorade and this over-drinking, which took 30 years. And it was... The night I sent that book off to foot to be published was the night I went out. And the next morning I went out and ran, had a terrible run, 
and then change my diet because that morning I'd read the book, I, I came across the book, The New Atkins for the New Year, and that was life-changing. So it's really interesting because Waterlog led to that because as I, I sent off the, the, the copy to the editors in, in the United States, and I woke up in the middle of the night and my brain said, you will get up tomorrow morning and you will run and you won't stop running for the rest of your life. And then when I went out and ran, I had a terrible run, came home, and then I was introduced to this book. It was an advert on email, the, the new Atkins for the new year. I went and bought it an hour later and that changed my life. Wow. So then that put me into a seven-year argument with, with my country, <laughs> with my <laughs> colleagues and my profession and my university. And I was essentially excommunicated from my profession to the point where to save my academic career and my credibility, I had only one option. I had to go to court. And so we went to court. The Health Professional Council charged me with unprofessional conduct. And uh, there was never any basis for that charge. It was driven by industry. We absolutely know that. And I won't mention which industries, but the, once you put your head above the parapet in this dirty world, and you start telling people not to eat carbohydrates, you become the target of many, many people. And I was that target. And they influenced academics throughout this country to challenge me, which they did. And fortunately, the, I had two of the best lawyers in the country that gave their time for free to me, worth at least a million dollars of free, med uh, free legal health assistance. I don't think I would have won the case without them. And it went over four and a half years. I was 28 days in court. I was cross-examined for three and a half days. I gave testimony for nine days. We had three experts, two from, one from America, one from Wales, and one from New Zealand. They were cross-examined and gave evidence for three days. So we had 12 days testimony, and they could find nothing wrong with our testimony. And that then led to a book called Law of Nutrition, which which many people say is the best book I've written because this is the story of, of what happened to me over seven years. I was isolated and, and mobbed and uh, how we were fought back and we won. And I, so that, um, I would like to say on that book that I've, I'm about halfway through that book. It is a full of details. I mean, you are so thorough in the way that you've you've written the book and in the, the details that you've included. So I would highly recommend it for anyone who is interested in, in insight into so many aspects of running nutrition and being able to speak out for what you believe in. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. That's very kind of you. And the only other book of note is The Real Meal Revolution, which, which uh, we published in 12, 2013 and which is still selling very well today. It's an amazing book. It's really just a book of recipes on for low-carbohydrate foods. That The recipes are delicious. And I added 25,000 words about the low-carbohydrate science, and I was charged basically for writing that. I mean, that was what stirred up the whole problem. So the other three authors, they were never challenged, but I was the one who was held accountable for writing Real Meal Revolution and for changing nutritional advice in South Africa. Yeah, and I haven't read that one, but I, but I am interested in it. And is it available on Amazon, I would assume? Yes, it is. It's published now in, in England. And by the way, the law of nutrition is also about to be released in, in Britain. So it will be also available much more easily in the United States than it is at, at the present time. So 
Professor Noakes, do you have a word of humor, especially? Do you have a funny story that you'd be able to share with us at this point, or is wisdom more on the on the agenda today? No, I think it's wisdom. Uh, I'll have to think about that one, the, the humorous story. <laughs> <laughs> so wisdom, what would you like to share? I think we, we've said the one important one of experiment and, and don't uh, don't just accept what you're doing and think that that's the right way because some expert told you it. No, that what I know now is that knowledge is changing so rapidly. I was reading, we mentioned William Davis and his book, no, you said wheat grain, but he wrote Wheat Belly. He's written a book called Undoctored. And he says the key is that you've got to get yourself undoctored. You, you need to treat yourself and manage your own health. And that's the future. But at one point, he says, by 2020, knowledge is doubling itself in every 80 days. Wow. 80 days. Wow. So that means that no single person can ever stay mm -hmm. current. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is it, we now have the wisdom of the crowds, and you need to find the people who can give you that information. So I'm very active on Twitter, and I, have, I follow a lot of people and I'm up to date pretty much with, with what happens on a daily basis in medicine as it relates to my interests. And I only do that because we're all interacting. All these people who, have, who share these same, same ideas are interacting and sharing their knowledge Wonderful. and information. And it's also, I think it's very important to always question uh, and, and, uh, and keep searching for other ways of looking at the same information or the same question, literally. Yeah. Um, now, final question here before you get to give us some information on how our audience can actually be in touch with you. Is there someone or some subject about running that we should feature in a future podcast? Um, yeah, uh, let me think. I, I would think that someone to do with the mental side of running and to understand belief and self-belief and how that comes about. I, I've already mentioned my two heroes, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers. Mm -hmm. And I think that reading their books and having them tell you about how they changed the world without realizing it, that to me is one of the most compelling stories in, in medicine. Well, I'll Sorry, have to in running. try and get a hold of those guys. Do you have contact information by any chance that you'd be willing to share with me? I, I don't, unfortunately. It's, no. I'm closer to, to Dave Scott, who the, was the great Ironman triathlete, who was the guy who also, he was another epic person because he developed the Ironman. It, in 1980, he, he was filmed winning this race. It was the first time it was shown on national television in the United States. And he became the man. And he, the whole Ironman story and its growth is, comes down to one person again. Yeah, so he's also, he's also a remarkable person. He would be a fun and one. And I'm going to say he really promotes, he promotes the low-carbohydrate diet, although when he was competing, he was largely vegetarian. He's realized that actually that probably wasn't the best way to win the Ironman. <laughs> he could have done it differently. Yeah, very interesting. So we are at, uh, at point five here in the final kick, and that is please share information that um, our audience can follow you uh, in all of the many facets of what what you're doing. Well, I think the easiest way is to to follow me on Twitter. So I'm at Prof Tim Noakes. So I spend quite a lot of time each day on Twitter, largely to educate myself, 
about all the new ideas in in science and the science of the low carbohydrate diet, but also to inform other people about my opinions and also the latest science that may be important to them. So that's one way. In other ways, through the Noakes Foundation. So we have a website. So you just need to Google the Noakes Foundation, and if you would like to to contact me, you could go through through our website there, and I'll be happy to answer questions through that. And all of this information will be listed in the podcast show notes. So you don't have to write it down right now, but you can come to our webpage afterward and find links to all of the things that uh, Professor Noakes has referred to today, including this last little bit of information. So Professor Noakes, thank you so much for joining us. Today's podcast, (laughs) in spite of technical issues, uh, amazing talk. Well, thanks, Stephanie. Thank you for making it so lively and interesting for me. It has been a pleasure to be with you today. It's it's been a lovely interview. Thank you so much. So stay tuned to the Runners Connect Winner Circle on Facebook by going to runnersconnect.net slash FB. And please subscribe to Run to the Top podcast at runnersconnect.net or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. You'll be notified every week when a new episode is published. Professor Noakes, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks again, Stephanie. And most importantly, thank you, our audience, for listening. We'll be back next week with another great talk to entertain, educate, and inspire you as you head out on your running workout. This is Stephanie K. Atwood, your host with Run to the Top. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Run to the Top podcast from runnersconnect.net. 